You're listening to Sermon Cast Media from Antioch Community Church in Wichita, Kansas. For more of our sermons, resources, or to support this ministry financially, see our website at antiochwichita.org. So Advent season, we've started Advent. Last week we started our new series called Yearn. And so um, Advent, again, is not just about Christmas. It's about longing or yearning for the kingdom of heaven to come. And so we celebrate as I, I do this thing every year. Like So when you notice me doing this, I'm imagining a manger over here. I'm not just like losing my brain. Like there's a manger over here and we celebrate the first coming. By the way, God's people were longing for that little one to come. Been longing for thousands of years for him to come. Hadn't heard a word from a prophet in 400 years. Longing for a touch of the Lord. And then as we do that, the focus then shifts to, and at the same time, we look to the second coming of Jesus and our yearning for Jesus to come back again. Now, I don't know about you. We talked about this last week a little bit, but I yearn for Jesus to come back. We yearn for him to take his, his rightful place and, and to rule the earth, to bring in a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth. We long for that. We yearn for that. And to yearn, this is the little definition that we had up last week, is to have an intense feeling of longing for something, typically something that one has lost or been separated from. Don't miss the second part of that. Yearning is not just anticipating something, but it's longing for something that you've lost, you've been separated from. Since the beginning of time, when man fell in the garden, we have been separated from the living God because of our sin and we long to be reconciled and now we have Jesus and we've been reconciled but we still long and yearn for something that we've lost that we've not yet had which is kind of an odd statement we've lost something we don't have yet we have not been able to see his face touch him but soon and very soon we will be able to amen and again if you don't spend a lot of your time or any of your time in your life thinking about that day and thinking about that time Uh, you're going to be missing the point. And so last week we talked about staying awake and what that looks like to stay awake and anticipating and longing, um, have us be ready to keep our eyes open. And this week we're going to go through just a little, a quaint little jaunt. Say a quaint little jaunt about John the Baptist and something that is a forerunner for us in the season. It's also a theme of Advent in the scriptures is, is that we prepare the way. Everybody say we prepare the way. So here's, our, here's kind of our go-to uh, phrase for this text this week. The way we live our lives should be a message to the world to get ready. The king is coming. We prepare the way. Let me say that again. How I live my life, how I love my wife, how I love my kids, how I go to work, how I do my job, that should be a proclamation of preparation that Jesus is coming. Well, how do you live your life like Jesus is coming? Well, you live your life like Jesus is coming. How do you like that answer? That blow your mind, right? Uh, it changes, it should change the way I do everything. If I'm truly, honestly believing that tomorrow Jesus might crack the sky open and come, um, I want to prepare the way. I want to prepare the way of my own heart. I want to prepare the way of my wife and my children. I want to prepare the way for people. I want Jesus to have a clear access to everywhere and anywhere he wants to go. And so we're going to look at that uh, through the lens of John the Baptist, uh, one of my favorite guys in the Bible. You can open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let me do the paper Bible check again today. Who's got them? Justin? You, sir, 
are a saint. Say it again. That's true. That's true. It's true. I've got size 14 font on my notes, and so I'm, I'm almost going to graduate to 16. <laughs> but I do have an extra-large print Bible at home uh, to read. So. And Jesus said, Whoosh. <laughs> and then it's, <laughs> it's about that thick. It's hard to carry around. <laughs> All right. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So a little bit about John the Baptist. John was... Um, was uh, born to aged uh, parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were a priestly family. Uh, Elizabeth was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, they were both righteous before God. It says in the, in the text in 1.6, walking out all the commandments and ordinances uh, of the Lord, they were blameless. Um, Elizabeth was barren. Uh, and now that she was in an advanced age, probably had given up all hope of having a child. Uh, Gabriel appeared to uh, the elderly gentleman, Zacharias, informing him that his prayers and heard that he would bear a son. Zacharias's answer to, um, to the devil, uh, to the devil, whoa, whoa, you guys need to leave now. <laughs> Hypocrisy alert. Um, had a not so quaint answer for the angel, which got him literally his mouth shut. Uh, couldn't speak for a time. Um, he was about, uh, John the Baptist was about six years older, uh, six months older than Jesus. And he, we know from the very beginning, he was filled with the spirit of God. We see in Luke 1, 39 through 41, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. How's that for pretty cool, huh? Pretty cool. Um, he's a possible Nazarite. Uh, if you look in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, 1 through 11, there's this covenantal rite of passage where a person can't cut their hair, they can't touch booze, they have to abstain from a lot of things. They were set apart. He was possibly in that rite. He lived in the wilderness. He was a wild man, as we read. He had camel's hair garments and uh, secured by a leather belt. Can you imagine that today? What would John the Baptist look like today? What would he wear? What would signify a wild man? 
Jenko jeans. I mean, what would you say? <laughs> Old band t-shirts, you know what I mean? Jinkos, yeah, the ones where if you walk through the rain, Andy knows all about this, Kimmy. If you walk through the rain, you'd gain 65 pounds of water and you'd be walking home like this. Uh, never mind the chafing issues. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, we know he was a powerful preacher, and his the end of his ministry came uh, when he was he really had a great ministry ending, really promising, really makes you want to jump right in the ministry. Uh, he was beheaded. Uh, he was be- beheaded at the request of Herodias, uh, Herod's woman who was his brother's wife. John the Baptist called out his infidelity. She didn't like that, and so she meandered away through her daughter that she would get the head of John the Baptist, and he died. Uh, Jesus calls him the greatest man ever. In Matthew 11, verse 11, it says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John, uh, no greater one than John the Baptist. Yet, and it goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is even heaven is even greater than he. There's some valuable things. We can learn about the story. We can learn from John the Baptist. Um, As we look to, the first thing we can learn about him is his message. Everybody say his message. So in that text, in that verse, um, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so repent means what? Turn around, right. Turn around. Metanoia means change your ways. Turn around. So literally, if you're walking this way and this is a sin issue, you can do what? Thank you for that strong turnaround. About face. That's right, for you military fellers out here. Um, And so um, his message was repentance. Why? Because the scripture said the kingdom is at hand. Now literally, listen, he wasn't just saying, hey, it's close to time when the kingdom's coming back. Literally, we know that Jesus could have been in the crowd. Like the kingdom of God is at hand. He's like literally, uh, the whole reason why John was there is to be the forerunner, to be this herald of Jesus. And we see Jesus comes right after this, gets baptized by John the baptizer, and he's there. So he's literally saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is sitting in this space. The Lord is in our midst. Turn from your sin. Now repentance over and over and over again in the scriptures is essential. And if you look through the New Testament, repent was the first word in John the Baptist's gospel in Matthew 3 right here. Repent was the first word of uh, some of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples in Mark 6. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions to disciples after his resurrection. So as soon as he resurrected, first words to them was repent. Repent was the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon as Peter preached in Acts 2.38 where he says repent, believe and be baptized. And repent was the first word in the mouth of the apostle Paul through, um, through his ministry um, in Acts 26, 19 through 20. Repentance, because the Lord is at hand, is still an essential message for today. Not, the, not that it was just a good one for then, right? We should be even hungrier for the repentance of, of our hearts. Number one, they were called in re- to repentance and anticipation. Number two, we're called to repentance from fulfillment, Right? Like they were longing for the Lord to come back and to come. And so their repentance in this water baptism was about um, anticipating ours is from a place of fulfillment, right? Our repentance has to do with what we already have. We repent because of his grace and mercy. So when God is convicting you, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, it's not a, hey, you big moron, hey, you big dummy. It's you already have 
the indwelling of the Spirit of God, Christ himself, in you repent. We look through the scriptures, Romans 2, 4. Um, or do you presume that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? I've said this before in the past. We don't have a revival problem. We have a repentance problem. Right? And we want revival. If I want revival in my life, but I don't put repentance as something that's at the forefront, and a lot of times I put it in the back burner, just assuming everything's okay, but in the end, repentance, repenting for my sin, turning around the other way, is necessary for the revival of my heart. Real repentance, if we look in the scriptures, comes from godly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Is there a worldly grief versus a kingdom grief? Yes, that worldly grief is, oh, snapper, I got busted, right? Is that, can I say snapper? Oh, oh, darn. Golly gee whiz. I, I, I got busted. Worldly grief makes you feel bad, but it doesn't bring any change. Literally just makes you feel bad. You just walk around moping. And sometimes you have to ex- access your heart a little bit and figure out if you did get busted in something or you're doing something wrong and you just feel like garbage and there's no compulsion to change, what kind of grief do you have? You're having worldly grief that doesn't line up with the imagery that what it's really about is that the king of heaven who resides in you is saying, repent of that. Turn away from that. I want to draw near. I want to be close. That thing separates me from you. My blood has washed you clean. Repent. And it's not just like a one-time say, hey, I repent for all things. We have to be consistently repenting on a daily basis of the things that break the heart of God. Amen? Godly grief comes from a place of not wanting to be separated from our daddy, and it's not a work. And for us, the kingdom upon us, as that's told them to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Listen to Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Jesus is not only at hand, Jesus is here. The Holy Spirit of God is here. The presence of God is here. He's with me. And when you're not here and you're stuck in your room at night or you're on your computer looking at something inappropriate or, you're, or you're whatever it is, A, B, C, or D, the presence of God is with you if you're a follower of Jesus. Repent because the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is literally in the room. And we need to repent. And it's not because he wants to squash me and push me down. It's like I said already, but we have to hit it home again. Is it because he longs to be close to us? And it's so foolish that separation from him comes from things in my heart that I hold on to that I don't repent from. Here's something else to look at. Not only was his message, but his purpose. In, uh, in verse 3, he says, and it'll be up there, for this is who he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It also says in Malachi, so that's Isaiah 40, verse 3. That's 700 years before John the Baptist came to fruition. It's a prophetic word about this one, this voice crawling out in the wilderness. Malachi 3, uh, ch- uh, chapter 3, verse 1 also says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. 
says the Lord of hosts. So 400 years before John the Baptist appears on the scene, he's prophesied again. The idea is taken from... um, Eastern monarchs, when they talk about he's a herald, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, he prepares the way of the Lord. He makes his path straight. Clark has this quote. I, I won't be up there, but I'll just read it for you. The idea is taken from the practice of Eastern monarchs who, whenever they entered upon an expedition or took a journey through desert country, they sent harbingers before them to prepare all things for their passage and pioneers to open the passes, to level the ways and to remove all the impediments. So John was this herald for Jesus. And what his point was, as you see, those Eastern kings would send people along the way to make sure they would do things like make sure the road was clear, make sure that there was no distractions or obstructions in the way, and they would prepare the, prepare the way, the king is coming. And so that's how they would treat the king. And this is what John the Baptist's purpose was. Here's something else to look like, the longing heart of people. In verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all that region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Um, people were longing. This, um, all the region, if you look in there, says, and it's, it's hard to think that every single person, but there's a reason why in the New Testament, the gospel here, that this says all, all the regions, people were longing. Can you imagine going thousands of years doing the same rituals over and over and over and over and over and over again to atone for your sin, making that same pilgrimage to Jerusalem over and over and over, the same walk up to the priest over and over again, confessing your sins again over and over and over again, bringing sacrificial animals over and over again, They were longing. They were longing for something different. Um, Here's what I think. I, I still think people are longing without question. I think people in this room are longing I think people in the world, even though they, um, why do people go to such false religions so quickly? Why do people go to self-help stuff so easy over and over and over again? People are longing. I don't think our job's that hard. (laughs) I think we make our job too hard sometimes because people are longing for Jesus. They don't know the articulation of the words. They don't know what they're saying, and they might even curse God. But I'm telling you, people are longing in their spirit, in their heart for the Lord. We long for him, and the world is longing for him. Here's another thing. Here's his message to the religious. Verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, which means, hey, you, you silly fellas. Uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. A brood of vipers to the religious elite. There was very few other things you could say to them that would kick them right where it counts. Okay? Such a strong word. So brood of vipers means literally translates sons of the devil. Right? The snake, the serpent, the enemy. Sons of the devil, right? And so such a strong word, sons of the devil, family of serpents. They believed that they were made right, righteous by keeping the law. And they believed themselves to be righteous in that way and the only people that were righteous. They often misinterpreted the law. They held many traditions of equal authority to the scripture. They were often hypocrites in their practice and neglecting the core and the spirit of the law for aspects of outward observance. 
their lives in repentance was superficial. We see this in Matthew 23, verse 27. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. Um, I think the same is true today. Is there modern-day Pharisee, Pharisaical hearts? Yes. You know what? It doesn't matter if you go to church all the time. Can I say that as a pastor? But you must be here every Sunday, twice on Wednesdays. It doesn't matter how faithful you are in giving above and beyond. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. Uh, none of those things matter. The only way we are made righteous is by the blood of Jesus. Amen? The only way we're made clean is by the blood of Jesus. And so your religiousness is, now everybody talks smack about religion. The scriptures say there's a good, pure, and undefiled religion, one that deals with orphans and widows. I've, I, I contend that I'm a religious man, but I'm a religious man based on the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life, amen? He's the only way uh, that we do that. And also in verse nine, it goes on and says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. They were so secure in the fact that they were God's children in the covenant of Abraham that they could essentially do whatever they wanted. They were inside the covenant. This was an enormous crossroads for the religious. Jesus was there to expose them, and he was the only way for them that would reject them. So listen, for us, you'll never be saved because your parents or your family. Right? This is a hard lesson to learn when you've got kids and you desperately want your kids to follow and know Jesus more than anything. Right? Them going to church with me me dragging them to church, pastor's kids, all that stuff, pastor dad, all the stuff, whatever's going on, none of that will save my children. They're descendants of Rob, who is the only way he is uh, in the grace of God's mercy is by the blood of Jesus, but that will not save them. Me knowing Jesus doesn't save my kids. Your ancestry doesn't save your kids. Your going to church doesn't save your kids. What saves your kids is the blood of Jesus. Amen. And he says, and he talks to them, and listen to how distinct and, and piercing his words are. God can make the stones rise up, children, for Abraham, so you better be careful. What is he saying? You think that you're chosen? You think that you're, just because you are in the lineage of Abraham, I can make this stone rise up as the children of Abraham. Pretty rough. No wonder they took his head. Amen? Uh, this little quote by W.R. Dan's. You cannot ride the coattails of others into heaven. You can only get there by holding on to the robe of Christ. Taking your kids to church is awesome. I think you should, and I think when parents don't and allow their kids to say that they don't need to be there or they get to decide, I think it's a mistake. Uh, I think you should drag your kids with you to church even when they don't want to go. Why? Because number one, they need to see that Jesus is the most important thing in your world, in your life. Amen. And number two, they need to be around where the gospel's priests and people who love Jesus are. Amen. Amen. Even though that won't save them, it'll give them a good opportunity. Here's another one. Um, nothing we can see and learn from John. It's the seriousness of the return of Christ. Verse 10 says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, chop off everything that doesn't bear fruit. 
hacked down into the fire. Ouchie. Everybody say ouchie. As we talked about last week, um, the day of judgment is horrible. This is what it's referring to. It's the day of coming judgment for, 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 the, for the living and the dead. And then he'll say this in Matthew 25, 41. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, and so we're talking about the day where the axe is laid bare. So you get this imagery of a big lumberjack, hoo, 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 green giant, and he's got his axe and he's laid it and he's laid it to the axe. He's laid it to the, key, the base of the tree and he's getting ready, fixing his cap, whatever he's doing stretching his biceps, but the axe is, is already laid to the tree, to the trunk of the tree, and he's about to swipe and cut and cut down. And so this says, every tree that does not bear fruit. Well, how do you bear fruit? We already know this in John 15, 5 through 7, as followers of Jesus, you have to actually be in him. John 15, 5 through 7, as I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he has thrown away. He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, we can look at this and say, man, he's so harsh. Gosh, he's harsh. Man, how could he, how could he treat people like that? How could he lay the ax? The point is, it's, it's this. We brought on the ax. We brought on the ax with our sin. We brought on the ax with our fall in the garden and all of our sin to this day. His grace the point is, it's not to look at this and go, oh my gosh, he's going to lay the axe to a tree, a better axe ride. It's, oh my gosh, I have the son of Jesus in my heart. I have the blood of Christ that washes over me. Thank God. I want to make sure I'm in that. And it also makes me stir my heart for people that are lost. Because when he says that, he's talking about people in my family. He's talking about people in this neighborhood. He's talking about people you go to work with. In my life, Better be an announcement of the coming of Jesus. Amen? Here's the next one. Something we can learn from John. It's his heart to put Jesus first. I love this. I baptize you with water in verse 11a. Verse 11a. Uh, for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Jesus calls John the greatest man ever, Right? And he says he's nothing compared to Jesus. I love his heart. John said this in John 3, 27 through 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. How many things can a person receive if it's not given to him from heaven? Nil, nothing. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy, this joy of mine is now complete. Listen, this is the, one of the best texts in the scriptures. He must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, some of John's followers were concerned that people were leaving their camp and going to follow Jesus. And as they complained to him, John's answer is, he's the point. He's the it. He's the everything. Um, here's the thing for us, why that's still true today. Um, if that verbiage isn't in your prayer language, it should be in your prayer language. Jesus, you must be on the increase and I must be on a decrease. You know what I need a whole lot less of in my life is Rob Dance. 
Can I say that again? The one thing I need a lot less of is my broken mind, ideas, emotions, thoughts that run contrary to the things of God, all of the stuff inside of me. What I need a lot more of is I need an increase of Jesus. I want you to see an increase of Jesus when you run into me. When we have a conversation, I want to leave you with the breath of heaven. When we have uh, times of prayer and worship together, I want to leave you with a scent of heaven over and over again. I must be on the decrease. He must be on the increase. Now that's counterproductive to what we're taught. You have to, you, 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 go get yours. And mine, 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 mine. It's not. Scripturally, it's backwards. It's all things him. It starts with a humble heart and I'm bankrupt in spirit, poor in spirit, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I don't have anything. And then when I do have something, it's only in Jesus. It's from him only. And I need more presence. I need more Jesus increase in my marriage. I need more increase of him in my child and with my kids. I need him with relationships. I need it in parenting. I need it in my personal battles. John the Baptist was a stud muffin because he said, Lord, you guys say that I'm the deal. And I'm telling you, I've told you from the beginning, this is my abridged version. I am not the dude. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. I'm not worthy to touch his feet. He must be on the increase. And I'm on the decrease. Come, Lord. Here's another thing that John gives us a little witness to is um, our baptism. Um, I baptize you with water, verse 11. I'll read the whole thing again, but we're just focusing on the part B of the verse. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's baptism was water for repentance, identified a person with their need to get right with God and to be cleansed. Uh, this quote says, there was nothing strange. So this wasn't an abnormal thing. There wasn't, there wasn't nothing strange in the ceremony of baptism, ceremonial immersion. By the way, the word baptismo means immersion. It means literally, this is why we don't sprinkle. As a Christian church, we fully baptize somebody, like Jesus was fully baptized. Um, and so, which is why we do that. We have our, our nice little dunk tank. How many of you have been baptized in one of our little dunk tanks? It's good, it's good, it's good, good. How many of you were baptized in a professional baptism tank? where you walk down the stairs with the robe on. It was, it was heated, right? It was nice. Pastor had the galoshes on and his big suspenders and baptized you right there, and everybody was looking at you. I think we do it in a more biblical way. We do it with cold water and a horse trough kind of thing. And... Uh, <laughs> um, Strange thing is that it was it was uh, the strange thing that why this was key was that it was Jews coming to baptism. This was common ritual for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. For a Jew to submit to baptism was to say, "I'm as bad as a heathen Gentile." This was a true mark of humble repentance, a radical rededication to the Lord. Their baptism was a baptism from sins. Now. How is this water? So you get that. Like Jews didn't come and be baptized because if they did come and be baptized, it meant I'm as bad as a Gentile. We just read that. And so for them to come and to be baptism, it goes back to the yearning part. People were yearning for more, yearning for more. These are droves of Jews that are coming and being baptized in water. Now, this is a different baptism than our baptism in the Christ. 
Our immersion in water identifies us with Jesus and his death and resurrection. Our baptism is a proclamation of our death to sin and rebirth into freedom. Now listen, there are components that are the same, our baptism, but when you were baptized, you were baptized more of just, it was not a repentance of sins issue only, washing you clean. That's not what the imagery is. The imagery is the death, the burial, and the resurrection, new life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We have a better baptism. Look at your neighbor and say, we have a better baptism. We have a better baptism, brother. Um, here's, Here's why. We're now baptized by the Holy Spirit, as it said. When we come to Jesus, the Spirit of God comes over our lives into us. And now with the Holy Spirit, God is literally with us. It says, and then it goes on to say, baptized with fire. Is that a literal thing? Some people take that as a literal thing. Uh, I would think that um, who as a Quakers believe that you don't have to be baptized because you're already baptized with fire. I mean, there's all these different things along different lines and sects of religion about about baptism with fire. Some people argue that this was this is uh, tongues of fire, uh, but it's really quick. It's it's actually this to baptize with fire means to bring the fires of judgment, which will purify the pure. It means not only is he going to baptize us uh, with the Spirit, but we're going to be baptized by fire. We're going to be purified by fire is what it means. But this, and it will destroy the wicked in the chaff. And this is how we know that that's probably the right angle for this, for this part about what it is to be baptized with fire. Because verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's chaff? I had chaffing one time, but some powder cleared that right up. Nope. Oops. Sorry. Jen says no. I retract that statement. <laughs> Chaff is the worthless residue of wheat stock after the kernel of grain has been removed. So looking at this and looking at John the Baptist, I was just trying to process my way like, okay, um, John the Baptist was this forerunner, this we prepare the way guy. He prepared the way. And now through the scriptures, we look and see that we are the men and women who now prepare the way. How does my life prepare the way of the Lord for coming um, to the world, to myself, to my family, to my friends, to people in my life? And so I just jotted down just some ways as I prayed through about the way that we do this. Number one is we prepare the way of the Lord in our own hearts. You have got to prepare the way of the Lord in your own heart. Have to. This is why the daily reminding yourself about who you are, the daily reminding yourself that Jesus is coming. If we don't get up in the morning and remind ourselves of the gospel, as we talked a billion times before preaching the gospel to ourselves, if we don't get up in the morning and remind ourselves that today could be the very day, prepare the way of the Lord, guess what happens? I fall back into complacency. I will get to work and I will get to the office or I'll get to somewhere. I might not even be able to leave the house again. And then I put my head down and I'm walking around in hopelessness or sin is starting to come at me or I'm way too busy. How about, here, here, here's, here's something just worse than outright sinning. It's just being lukewarm, the scriptures say. Just following Jesus by mouth and by verbiage, but not acting like he is coming. You have to prepare your own heart. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to be convinced that Jesus is coming. Make the path straight of the Lord in your own heart. Here's another one. We prepare the way in our homes and in our families. 
Um, if I don't live in my marriage and been guilty of this, if I don't live in our marriage like Jesus is coming back tomorrow, it's going to change the way I love my wife. It changes the way I love my wife. Because if Jesus is coming tomorrow and then all the things, that, number one, we're worried about today, money and stuff, what kind of great gift you're getting me for Christmas, right? GMC Sierra, 2022, 23. <laughs> I don't ask for a Harley anymore. My back can't take riding the bike anymore. Um, but a part of my job as a man of the house, um, I need to prepare the way of the Lord. Like my kids need to know in my relationship with them, like Jesus could be coming back anytime. It sounds fatalistic, especially when you're, oh, you're going to go to college and be this and that and that and the other thing. How do you know that? How do you know that's God's heart? How do you know that God's heart is to come back on Thursday and your kid never sees the inside of a soccer trophy or never sees the inside of a college dorm or never goes and has their first job? You don't, you don't know. Maybe God willing, they do those things and it's in his heart and his will, but you don't know that. And if we raise our kids that way, we raise our kids with a long game picture, 70, 80 years you got, you process those things in a very delicate way. Because, hey, you want to go to college? Man, whatever Jesus wants you to do. You want to, you want to go get a job? You want to go to technical institute? Whatever you want to do. All those things are fine and great for you to help your children. That's good parenting. The problem is, is when you act like you leave and you uh, omit the fact that this, we are, time is temporary. Amen? Like time is temporary. In the church, what we do here prepares the way of the Lord. Um, if I sat up here and talked about your best life now, and we talked about all these strings, you should come up here and beat the snot out of me and run away and go find a Bible preaching church. If part of my job in this room is to say, y'all, Jesus is coming back. When you meet in discipleship together, it should be with a tone and anticipation that Jesus could be coming back at any time. It could be that Jesus, hey, brother, you know that sin thing we've talked about 75 times that you bring to the table week after week after week after week and just call it your struggle? Guess what, Rob? Jesus is coming. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus is here. And last but not least, we prepare the way of the Lord uh, for the world. As we know in the Great Commission, you've heard it a billion times, preached from this pulpit and every other place you can. Jesus came to them saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know what that is? That's heralding. That's proclaiming the Lord is coming. When we talk about being nervous about sharing the gospel, what we're saying is we're, we're nervous about uh, sharing the kingdom of God is near. Listen, um, again, this is the same stupid adage. If we know that Jesus is coming tomorrow, who do you call? Who do you contact? Who do you get into a conversation with about Jesus? Who do you represent with? Because I, I, I hate to think about the fact that that day is going to be coming. And when that day comes, I'm going to say, oh, no. Oh, no. Not because I don't not want to be with Jesus, but because I know the people I love in my family, my sisters, my mom. I might not go. 
sharing, sharing the gospel with somebody, y'all, is simply preparing the way for the Lord to come. And you don't know what God wants to do in the heart of that person. You never know the life that God has on the other side of that conversation with somebody. You might be looking at and talking to the next John the Baptist. You might be looking at the next Kim Meeks. Amen? Oh, absolutely. Um, y'all, we prepare the way. Back to our big idea for the day is that the way I live my life should be a message to the world to get ready. The king is coming. We prepare the way. Internal question time. Just a thing of worship. This isn't supposed to mean to beat anybody over the head. This is simply like, listen, this is, these, these are the Advent texts. Isn't it funny how these are the Advent texts in this Christmas season where it's all about where it's all about getting and receiving, but the Advent texts keep pointing us the other way. The Advent texts keep pointing us the other way to look like why on earth would they have John the Baptist there? It's because Advent is the anticipation of the coming of Jesus, the yearning for him to come back. And John and, and John is our witness is saying, Y'all, prepare the way. Prepare the way in your hearts. Prepare the world. Prepare the way with your kids, with your spouses. Prepare the way with the world. Prepare the way with the church.